Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst and author Graham Jackson. Mr. Jackson received an honors BA in English and French, followed by a master's in information studies from the University of Toronto. His diploma in analytical psychology comes from the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, where he studied from 1985 to 1990. His thesis for the Jung Institute came out under an inner-city imprint in 1991. Called The Secret Lore of Gardening, the book explores the archetypal background of male-male intimacy. Not satisfied that he had created a well-rounded picture, he composed a volume two, The Living Room Mysteries, which continued the exploration. This was published in 1993. He continues to write on Jungian themes for the Ontario Association of Analytical Psychology's professional training and public programs in the form of lectures. He's also engaged in writing a novel series, a saga that looks at the psychological history of a handful of characters over a period spanning 40 years. Our talk focused on his recent presentation, War on Eros, in which he refers to Jung's statement, where love reigns, there is no will to power, and where the will to power is paramount, love is lacking. A simple, verifiable statement, Jackson notes. But what happens when the will to power, through several seductive guises, such as fashion, social media, and so-called technological superiority, threaten the very existence of Eros? In his presentation, Jackson explores Eros's struggles for survival in a society increasingly addicted to one-upmanship and celebration of sentimentality. This interview was recorded on March 23, 2016, at Jackson's home office in Toronto. What was your experience in Zurich like? I mean, why did you opt to go there instead of... Well, I was living in London at the time. Oh, okay. And I'd been in London for a couple of years, and I applied to the training program in London, but it was just getting off the ground. Mm -hmm. And they took a long while getting back to me. Uh, and I, in the meantime, I'd applied to Zurich as well and heard from them, went for my interviews and was accepted. And uh, I said, okay, I guess I'm meant to come here. Right. And I went there. Mm -hmm. And it was quite a special time. I'm living in a country where I don't speak the language. I had high school German. But high school German isn't much use in Switzerland. Um, oh, right. It's, it's uh, Swiss German is what's generally spoken, and it's a dialect. It's not taught. It has no written grammar. Uh, so you're winging it when you're talking to the locals. Yeah. And uh, that was a little difficult for a while. I was quite uh, out of my element. But once I got going to classes at the Institute, things fell into place and I met some wonderful people and uh, soon had a little community of friends in Zurich. Mm -hmm. And it was a wonderfully rich time. The work, the analytic work was wonderful. I worked with two different analysts who were really, in their each in their own way, uh, wonderful. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was overall a very enriching experience. The, the the cultural life of the city, you know, the fact that it's at a center center of Europe, and trains from all over Europe are coming in and going out. Of course, at that time, communism was still ruling in Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. and uh, there was that sense of the other side. You know, right. the, the Cold War, the Iron Curtain was still in place until the last year of my training when all of a sudden everything's falling apart. And that was very exciting too, to read about it, and to be caught up in the news about it. Mm -hmm. It was a very exciting time. So where did you go after your training? I, I came back here. I was originally intending to go back to England, but you know how it happens? You, right. you think, is that really where I need to be? I then thought of going to Montreal. But mm -hmm. Here in Canada, we were caught up in 
great deal of separatist sentiment in Quebec, and Quebec was making it very clear that they weren't sure they were staying in Confederation. And uh, uh, I thought, well, to go to Montreal, to set up a practice in Quebec, that might be risky. So I came back to Toronto, my hometown. And you set up a private practice? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, immediately. And that was, that was interesting. I mean, it was like coming back to a city I'd lived in years and years mm. and years ago. So much had changed in those four years, six years since I'd been living abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, of course, a new, very conservative government in power, and mm-hmm. money was the, what it, well, how can I say, it was the centerpiece of socio-cultural life here at that time. New buildings going up, new, uh, new enterprises taking over the center stage, and it was a very business-oriented atmosphere, and it was very different from when I left. Yeah. It was still a little, back in 83, it was still a bit ragtag in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, and then 1990, it was changed. And there was an audience, a real audience for inner work, for inner exploration, maybe compensating for the the uh, emphasis on money Interesting, and business yeah. and uh, the corporate mentality. It was, quite an ex- it was quite exciting, and I got a practice very quickly. Within six months, I had a full practice. And that was in the beginning of the 90s. That was 1990 itself, yeah. Um, you have two books that were published by Daryl Sharp's Inner City Books. Yes. The first one was published in 1991. That's right. And it's called The Secret Lore of Gardening, Patterns yeah. of Male Intimacy. Right. Tell us a little bit about that one. Well, it, it was a book. Uh, it's a book that actually came out of a dream. And... The, the dream happened in my first two or three months in Zurich. I went to see my analyst and told him, well, I've, I've had a dream. And the dream was I was with my old partner. Mm-hmm. And he had come into the house, and I was it was my parents' house, as it turned out in the dream. And he'd come into the house and said, I've done a test. And I've come out green. That means I'm a frog, he said. I said, oh, I should do that test. Mm -hmm. So in the dream, I did the test. And I came out yellow. And that meant that I was a canary. Mm -hmm. And I was so struck by this dream. And so was my analyst at the time, a wonderful man named John Hill. I was so struck by this dream, I started making notes of what green man, yellow man, green man, yellow man, what did that mean? And I got dream after dream after dream where the theme of green and yellow was present. I thought, well, there's something wanting to communicate itself to me. And I began to think of male-male relationships both of the erotic kind and of the friendship kind, Mm -hmm. where these colors could be said to be interacting. And I started reading and I read voraciously and right the way back uh, and discovered that, you know, that dynamic, what I call the yellow-green dynamic, was present in relationships way back when. And by yellow, of course, I meant the the sky, mm-hmm. the sky energy, the the sun energy, mm-hmm. the above it all energy. Mm-hmm. The the one could say that intuition is very close to yellow, yes. and by green I meant the, the the earth, the earth man and his associates. And I thought, well, sun and earth, sun and growing things, it, it's a dynamic combination. So I pursued that idea, and I kept getting dream after dream after dream. Wow. <laughs> illustrating that, that theme. And pretty soon I was writing, making notes. 
and the notes turned into a thesis. Mm-hmm. And the thesis was the secret lore of gardening. Mm-hmm. And it reads like a thesis, of course. That's one of the difficulties with the book, is that it reads like a thesis, and there are so many uh, quotations and footnotes and asides in it that it's, I think, probably hard, harder to read. But it's a wealth of information. It's a wealth of information. That's what it was criticized for, actually, ah. when it was published. <laughs> oh, too much information. But isn't that much... what books are for? Well, exactly. Right. And, uh, and the ground had never been covered. Yes. There was no archetypal approach to male-male relationship. Right. And I thought, oh, well, I'm contributing something here, and it's, I'm going to pursue it. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, but it doesn't describe everything. Mm-hmm. The green-yellow dynamic, that is, doesn't describe everything. So I discovered red and blue. Mm-hmm. I t- thought about red and blue and what that would mean. And that brought forward another, brought me to another book. So that's book two, The Living Room Mysteries, Patterns of Male Intimacy, book two. And that was came out a couple years later? 93. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it's a much easier read in some mm-hmm. regards. And there's a synthesis at the end where I bring it all together, all four colors together, mm-hmm. and talk about their significance and how they show up and in contemporary men's lives. And, and there was a very positive response from the readership. And a lot of men contacted me. Mm, nice. You know, wrote me little, wrote me when email showed up. Right. I, I got emails, but I got letters, cards, telephone calls. Wow. And through Daryl Sharp, uh, people sent notes. Mm-hmm. And, and that was very rewarding mm-hmm. to, to know that people were interested and yeah. pursuing and felt that it was meaningful to them. Most of the readers were gay men, but by no means all of them. Mm -hmm. I had one man contact me who who had had a buddy all his life, and they'd been close from the time they were kids. And he said, this describes my relationship with my friend perfectly. This is where we are. And it was very helpful to have this to illuminate that friendship. So, yeah, I understand it. So how does Jung figure into these two books? Well, I mean, he was very interested in archetypal energies, of course. Mm-hmm. Very interested. And he was also interested in the dynamics of relationship. Uh, he writes a lot about it in the male-female yes. context. And I, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a man who pursued the sexual theme very um, regularly. I think he thought that mm. this was Freud's field, ah, and right. he's, I'm not going to do that. Freud did that. But he alludes to it every so often, and he makes some aside, very interesting little asides about, you know, what we call today the gay man. Mm-hmm. He, some of it positive, some of it typical of his era. Right. Um, but he wasn't, you know, that's the wonder of Jung, that he was never really dismissive of anything. It all yeah. interested him. Yes. And he could talk about it. Sometimes he would, he would dismiss uh, something and then come back to it and say, well, but if you look at it this other way, it doesn't seem so insignificant. And he was always doing that with subjects mm-hmm. and correcting himself yes. and amending himself. And a lot of people who who like things to be straightforward and clearly defined find that very irritating. And yeah. he's not yes. he's not the easiest writer to read. I had a professor in Zurich, a wonderful man named Mario Jacobi, yes. who's written a lot of books and just passed away a couple of years ago. But he, he said something in a, in a colloquium one day that has always remained with me. He said, with Jungian psychology, the doors and windows are open. You can take a lot in and not be disturbed by it. Whereas you can't do that in Freudian psychology. There are limits. No, we don't accept that. That's not part of our mandate. That's not part of our worldview. That's not part of our system. 
Jung ha had a system, sort of, but he kept opening the doors on things. Yeah. You know, and, and adjusting his point of view to, to receive new information. And I believe that's what makes Jungian psychology so, uh, so compelling. That there's there's space, there's space, yes. there's light. It's like a, a well-aired house. Where do we go from here as far as Jung and beyond Jung? Or have we not even fully understood Jung yet? Well, I'm sure we haven't. Uh, and going beyond, I mean, there are lots of people who've gone beyond and who, who see themselves as post-Jungian, define themselves in that right. those terms. Lots of people, and that usually means incorporating a fair bit of, you know, neo-Freudian thought, and uh, and now of course neuro neuroscience is right. making an impact, and a lot of unions I am aware of are taking on neuroscientific uh, points of view. The whole question of trauma has become. A, a central focus for many, and that's altered how we talk about Jungian concepts. Uh, trauma has added another color to the palette, and and it, and it, it's very much front and center now. You know, we, yes. You know, so people have gone. I mean, James Hillman went beyond. Jung, in a manner of speaking, his archetypal psychology was a, a reaction to what he felt were the the limitations of Jungian psychology. And but it's clearly his archetypal psychology is clearly built on a Jungian foundation. Mm -hmm. um, so there there are people who are defining themselves as post-Jungian. I, I myself am very interested in existential psychotherapy mm -hmm. and have I'm attempted to incorporate you know, existential ide psychotherapeutic ideas into my practice. They can coexist yes. in the same house. That's what Jacobi meant when he said, right. the doors and windows are open. I, I brought in the existential approach and find it very, what's the word, um, comfortable mm. with Jungian ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now there are existentialists who say, no, we don't treat the, un we don't look at the unconscious in this or that way. We, we don't deal with the unconscious. That's, but I just, I mean, Rollo May, one of the great existential psychotherapists, towards the end of his life, was saying, we need to pay attention to Jung. We need to pay attention to his way of working with psyche, his way of working with the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Dreams are an important factor in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. You gave a lecture or presentation called The War on Eros. Mm -hmm. And in the description, you quote Jung as saying, where love reigns, there is no will to power. And where the will to power is paramount, love is lacking. Right. What does that mean? Well, I think what he's saying is that the, the, the I'm clearly he's saying the two things are incompatible. Power comes in the room, Eros goes out. We're no longer in the presence of Eros. How would you define power in that sense? Well, in that sense, Eros, if I may define Eros yes. as the capacity for relatedness, mm -hmm. to be present to and related to whatever is the other, whoever is the other. Okay. It's relating. Power is not about relating. Power is about taking charge of, yes. assuming control of. Power is dictating mm -hmm. to the other, whatever the other is, your agenda. Your agenda. Yeah. Yeah. And... In our culture, there is a very, there's a surface, um, very surfacey uh, acknowledgement of Eros, but it's very surfacey and very 
Superficial, yes, that's what I mean. Superficial. It, today, or has it always been this no, way? No, today, I think it well, it's probably been so for a long time. But, right. But today, it's, I would say it's even more. More so. Superficial. Yeah. I mean, we, once upon a time, sexuality was some something that one did in the privacy of one's own domain. But now sexuality is everywhere. Right. You know, we can't turn around without being confronted with an image of sexual union, sexual uh, pleasure, sexual titillation. It's everywhere. But it doesn't add up to eros. I mean, it's not that kind of erotic display is not the same as eros. Eros is a deep capacity for relating, for being in relationship to someone or something. And what are some examples of that? Well, we have a lot of examples, you know, in tried and true examples in literature, in film, in, in theater, in art, uh, famous couples, uh, famous friendships famous but they're they're very special uh, cases people ask me about Toronto I was born here mm -hmm. and back in the 50s when I was a little kid Toronto was quite a different place it was it was of course smaller and less populous but it was a kinder place and it was a kinder place, Laura, because people actually took the time to look at one another, to talk to one another. Uh, it may not have been deep talk, but the sense of the other, the need to relate to the other, was quite present in in the just on, in in the world at large, right, in the streets, right. in the shops, in the. Yeah, on the streetcars, you know, there was a sense of we're all in this together. Yes. And that has nearly vanished from the city. Uh, there are formulaic gestures in that direction, but they're just formulaic. There's people are not real, don't really understand. And, and when I say people, I'm talking mainly about those under 35 okay. people mm -hmm. don't really get it the, the way we got it. You know, that the relating means being present to someone, being able to recognize, take in the reality of the other and deal with that instead of some fantasy of the other. Did it change slowly over time? Well, I think it. I think it probably changed over time. When I said I came back here from Europe in 1990, I felt a difference. Yes. But it's really the the advent of the internet and all the gadgets that are now available to hook people up to the internet. Yeah. The online life that has made, I think, a huge difference in how we live in the city. And people don't look at one another. People don't, uh, if they're called on to interact, they do so, but you, usually in a fairly formulaic way. There is no, feels to me, no genuine taking in. One would guess witnessing what one witnesses every day that the culture was intensely narcissistic. Yes. There's no real capacity to, to take in the other. And we see it all the time. Yesterday, I was in a cab, came to a, a light that was just turning red. And out into the intersection walks a young woman with her face uh. in her phone. The cab driver put his hand on the horn and she looked up at him and gave him the finger. Uh. She's walking against the light, and everybody stops for her because her little world is so much more important than anything that goes on around her. 
and I'm noticing this too. I'm really glad that you're talking about this. How did we get here? I am in it so deep. I am on Twitter. I am on Facebook. I am on Instagram. I have this website. I have the podcast. I am texting people. I am picking up my phone to check the weather, to get a phone number, to check this message, that message. I'm tapping on a piece of glass most of the day. And I'm not talking to people, and I'm not looking at yes, people, yes, 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 yes. and I can feel it. And that's the war on Eros. Oh, okay. It's the, the encouragement everyone has to live in little bubbles, little internet-controlled bubbles. Uh, how did we get here? Yeah. Well, we're very impressed with technology, far too impressed with it and its power. There's power for you. It, we're really power. we're really impressed with the ability to control and to summon up a world at the press of a of a thumb. And I think there are real drawbacks, terrible drawbacks to all of this. Yes. Of course, it's convenient in many ways. I mean, you can find out a piece of information if you want to. Uh, a bus time or uh, mm -hmm. the weather tomorrow, uh, it, it's there at your fingertips. But beyond that, it's become more, well, it's become more than that. Yes. People use it for everything. And they become lost, absolutely lost in it. I found myself at times looking for certain things and getting sidetracked, yes. massively sidetracked. And I think, what am I doing? I don't really need to collect this information that I'm looking at right now. This is not what I'm interested in. And yet I've been led there, and that human curiosity has carried me along. But the Internet doesn't stop. Once it's got you, Laura, it's got you. <laughs> and you have to make a concerted effort to disentangle yourself, disengage. But then when we do disengage, the others around us are still engaged. That's right. And then we're still alone. That's right. That's right. We're still alone. We're, we're, yeah, it's true. There was a book, I'm trying to remember the title of it, it, it written by a Canadian fellow, Michael, some West Coaster. And it was a book about living with the Internet. And he decided that he was not going to pay attention to the internet for, I think it was two months, two mm -hmm. months, three months. Mm -hmm. He went off the internet. Mm -hmm. His his partner was still on the internet, but he was not. How difficult. And he told us how difficult it was. But he he actually settled down and read a book that he had wanted to read for years and hadn't gotten around to because there was always the distraction of the internet. And the book happened to be War and Peace. Mm. And he got himself into it and found, you know, himself transported. Mm. He says in a way that I'm never transported yeah. online. I got so, he got so interested in the characters. He, he was, it was breathtaking. And they made a great impression on him. So I, I believe I may be, I may be misremembering, but he and his partner made a little plan post the post experiment right. to limit their connection to internet use very specifically, and only at certain times would they allow themselves to go online and cruise right. internet. Right, and and they both did so for work purposes, but mm -hmm. they they made sure that they had real face to face time with other people, and at, you know the the author was quite surprised by the negative reaction he got from friends when he decided to disappear mm -hmm. online. You know, what are you doing? What are you doing? How mm -hmm. can you do this? You're you're you're, you're cutting yourself off from everybody. You're, and it's strange. Yes. Because you're cutting yourself off from everybody through the agency of a screen. What about 
person-to-person, face-to-face contact. Do you think that, because I'm still sort of hung up on how we got here, I always wonder, okay, is this a compensation for something? So is it that we were so having so much trouble relating to the other um, that it kind of devolved into this? Well, you know, I could, yeah. See, I, you're 51. That means you were born in the 60s. 65. 65. So you were a, a little child when the late 60s happened, mm-hmm. the early 70s, the time when the, where the motto was, make love, not war. And there was no thought of devices like right. Right. like computers and internet interfering with life and it was a face-to-face world and and it was a very rich world people now look at it and make fun of it and should make jokes at its expense but I think it was a terrific time. The 60s. The late 60s. We, we keep hearing about how violent the 60s were, but you're pointing out that it was also a time of, like, a big oh, love-in. That's right. The summer of love, 1967. You know, it was, uh, it, was, it was a very exciting time. And we're not doing that now. Well, no. I mean, no, we're not. Are we doing it virtually? Well... I'm sure there are people who would say so. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How you do a love-in virtually, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I noticed that that whole movement got bought up by clever-minded capitalists who saw money-making possibilities. And that movement, that Make Love Not War, Summer of Love movement, got turned into products. I think the same thing happened to women's lib. I think the same thing happened to gay lib. That we have another, we have an audience here. We've got, we've got, mm. we come up with product Monetize it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Monetize it. And I think that's been a steady process since that time. Finding ways of monetizing uh, what start out as very spontaneous uh, experiences of the world and others. You know, we're going to we're going to make money off this. We're going to make money off this. I have at this juncture in my life, I have such a horror of people selling me things. I know. And marketing to marketing. I, I don't want to be marketed to. Uh, you know, I I have this podcast and it's free. It's free. You can download it. You can listen to it in your browser. You can listen to it on iTunes. It's free, and I keep I'm contacted by people who want me to promote my brand. I'm not a brand. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a brand. No, this is a conversation. Yes, I'm doing too much of the talking, but it it is not a, at all. It, it is a conversation. All. But I want. I, I'm not looking to monitor. I, I have yeah. no ads on my website, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want any part of that. So, but yeah, when I feel like somebody's trying to sell me something, it yeah. it uh, makes me squeamish. And as far as me promoting the books, I am. I just want to be clear. I am part of the Amazon um, commission program. Yeah. I have not seen a single cent from Amazon. Yeah. It's not about that. I'm. I like to give people information on what's available on on, on the book. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but there's something else in your in the description of your presentation of War on Eros. You ask, what happens when the will to power through several seductive guises, such as fashion, social media, and so-called technological superiority, threatens the very existence of that questionable fellow Eros? I say questionable fellow because... Jung. Uh, well, you... Yeah, Jung refers to Eros. Well, both as that questionable fellow, but also as, I mean, Eros was, after all, the son of Aphrodite, and he's related to the whole um, experience of Eros as we know it. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and it's, it's interesting because he calls the, the principle of Eros the feminine principle yes. by excellence. So there's where Jung goes... 
gets confusing to people, you know. He's a god, he's the son of Aphrodite, but he's also, if you say, like to say it, the, the captain of the Eros, the feminine principle known as Eros. Yeah. Small e Eros. So Eros is not just a glorious love-in. That was the mistake of the 60s. It wasn't a differentiated enough mm. phenomenon. They, they were caught up by an archetype and, and lived out of an archetype. They, Which is dangerous ground. Well, it is. It's shifting ground, always shifting ground. Mm. And it, it's very, it was very exciting uh, to be there and to experience that. But mm -hmm. uh, today, I, I, just, I still look back and I think, well, it, that was a golden era. Uh. Because of the, and I wasn't even old enough to be part of all that, really. Mm -hmm. I was just coming into my later teens when all of that broke. 67, I was 17, and uh, mm. it was uh, a phenomenon to be looked at with wide eyes and open mouth. I mean, it's, uh, what is this? Right. It, it, it's as if the world had been caught up, at least the metropolitan world had been mm -hmm. caught up in, in an archetypal energy it couldn't control. And there was a lot of opposition to it, naturally, but the, those people who yeah. were caught up in it were, I mean, they were the real flower children, mm -hmm. you know, make love, not war. And it's funny because people were into meeting and boundaries were dissolved very quickly, you know, you were, if you were male and you happened to sleep with a, a man, well, that was, that's just cool. Yeah. Cool. Groovy. And you didn't have to be gay to do it. You, mm -hmm. you know, you, you did what came naturally. Yeah. That was the idea. And nowadays, it's so funny to speak for a moment of the gay world. Once upon a time, when I was first aware of myself as a gay man, out in the, out in the streets, you know, you'd, you'd pass somebody and there would be eye contact. Mm -hmm. And there, the, there would be a connection through the eye contact. Mm -hmm. Nobody looks at anybody anymore. Mm. In the gay world, it seems to me to be a dead art looking at really? others. It's all done by the, yes. the apps, the various apps that are available for meeting. And meeting a person on a screen is very different from meeting a person in the flesh on in a cafe or in a bookstore in a, where it used to happen all the time. It almost never happens there anymore, unless the, the players are of a certain age, you know, over 60. So now, what what would you say are the consequences of this, of, of where we are today with all of this? Yeah, it's a good question. The consequences, I could, you know, if I were to go on a rant, I would say, you know, yeah. I, would, I would say that there's <laughs> connections are very shaky, very shallow, right. very... Uh, Focused entirely on body, uh, on and women and, and men and women know this too. It, the focus. I mean, I have got a couple of clients who go to straight clients who go to clubs, mm -hmm. and I'm just amazed to hear what goes on there. You know how how little appreciation there is for the individual as a as a whole. The body yes. is important. The dress is important. I know. And if you don't have the body or the dress, or you can't disguise the body with the dress, you're in trouble. Nobody's interested. You have to... The Internet has been very good at, at promoting fashion. This is acceptable. This is what you need if you're going to function in the world. And a lot of the cyberbullying that goes on on Facebook is based on the failure of you know, people not to live up to these undefined expectations of physical beauty and physical fashion 
or fashionable con consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's a, and this is a particularly true for the very young. You know, the kids are punished by their peers for not dressing appropriately, for not having the right hair, for having the right makeup, for being built enough. The boys are under a lot of pressure now. Sure. To, yeah. You know, they've got to look like this. Yeah. And the internet's very good at promoting this. You know, this is what you have to look like, boys. People find one another just the same. I'm not saying yes. it's uh, all hopeless. People do find one another. But so much of what I've been dealing with in the last few years in terms of couples is, you know, relationships that were founded on very superficial ground. And now these people are looking at each other and wondering, who are you? What is this? What have I done? What's important here? What's really important here? It's clearly not what we thought it was originally. What do we do? What do we do? Do we separate? I mean, that's been going on in it for forever. But but it's very marked now because the I think the kids are saying, well, it has to look like this. You know, we we have to look like this, and we have to have the, we have to have certain things to be acceptable, to be to fit in, to be deserving of a good match. We have to have certain. You know, the devices. And it's all about devices. <laughs> yes, it sure is. Yeah. You can't turn on the computer without being flooded with ads all the time. Right. It used to be TV that did this, but TV yeah. couldn't, didn't have the, it wasn't the kind of, the, the density. Uh, I don't know what the right word is here. It, 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 there's so much mm -hmm. advertisement everywhere. Some of it is also groomed to the person using the computer. You, yeah. know, you look at a certain site and look at something and say, oh, isn't that interesting? And the next thing you know, you've got ads from four different firms who specialize in providing whatever that is, whether it's a trip to Europe or uh, a coat or a right. Chesterfield. It doesn't matter. It, yeah. And you've got ads galore, pushing, pushing, pushing. Take me, take me. You know, it's uh, it's like an Alice in Wonderland world. Yeah. And you know, with this there's a stretch. The main street running across here is called Bloor, and Bloor up here used to have such a wealth of shopping choices, including a fabulous bookstore, mm. a great butcher shop, wonderful stuff. There are now Three body hair uh, removal removal yeah boutiques very chic and smart and staffed by young people mm -hmm. who seem to believe that you know removing body hair is critical to your happiness mm -hmm. and charging big prices for it yeah replacing the bookstores yeah shop the you know. Yes. And I think, oh, no, not really. <laughs> I was at the gym and the Kardashian show was on the television on the machine I was on. And they're so popular. And the, what I noticed is the whole show was promoting products and doing things like when they go to these doctor's appointments or these plastic surgery appointments or this laser hair removal or this... Mm. cellulite removal appointment, they have the cameras go with them. And isn't that just to sort of encourage and promote having those procedures done? Of course. Why, why are, as a Jungian analyst, please, please tell us, well, why are we doing this? Well, to fit in. It's always to been about... To fit in with... Some notion, some collective notion of what constitutes beauty... And success. So why is there a standard of beauty instead of the the individual, the uniqueness of the individual and appreciating I love unique people. I love my friends are 
eclectic, interesting. Why is it that some people want to conform and be with people that are all alike and others want to run the other way? Well, I mean, because there's reward. There are rewards for fitting in. There are... uh, Many perceive there to be great rewards by fitting in, by doing what's recommended by the experts. Uh, I put experts in inverted commas because they're a dubious bunch. These people, the Kardashians, why anyone would pay two minutes' notice to the Kardashians is beyond me. But the fact that you go to the gym and have it on a TV on the machine you're using, I mean, that's part of the whole problem, isn't it? You can't get away from <laughs> yes. this stuff. You can't escape it. If you're going to be out in public now, you're everywhere surrounded by it. You can't. In dentist's offices, yes. my dentist's office, every one of the little offices has a television. TV, and I yeah. always say, can you please turn the TV off mm-hmm. when I go in? Because I don't want to sit and look at advertisements. I don't want to sit and look at talking heads, talking about next to nothing. Mm-hmm. I just don't want it. I want to be with the yes. hygienist, and yes. uh, we have our chat, and she does my teeth, and uh, and that's eros. That's, that's eros. well, yeah. Relating. Well, I mean, yeah. And she's and my dental hygienist is extremely related human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, very present and very uh, there for me in the time that I'm sitting with her. What happens when you are in a situation where you need to interact with somebody and you notice that they're not present? Oh, well, that happens all the time. Yeah. And, and, in shops, it's, it's and particularly if the person is 35 and under, I, maybe even 40 and under, I don't know, that. But the young people in particular, they have a little patter they'll do. But when you actually ask them a question, do you know if this will do X, Y, or Z, there's a blankness. A blankness. And, oh, I'll see if I can find somebody who can answer that question. And they'll go off and maybe five minutes later come back with someone. And the person may or may not be able to answer the question. This happened to me just recently, and the person who was brought back by the 22-year-old who was on the desk was a 27-year-old, a man, who didn't like not to have the answer, Mm -hmm. so got very rude with me. Short, you know, well, why are you asking this question? Because I need the answer. (laughs) Right. You know, it's it's all over the place, and I think it's... It's a world I I can um, Jung wouldn't recognize. Jung and his disciples wouldn't yeah. rec- recognize. I mean, my parents wouldn't recognize it. They would, I think, be aghast yes. to be living now, you know. And, and trying to communicate, and particularly, you know, my mother was even at the end of her life, which was 1998, said, what's the matter with these girls in the shop? What's the matter with these girls in the shop? Don't they? Am I speaking too softly? I said, no, no, no. They're not listening. They they hear just what their their vocabulary is limited, and their ability to take in is very limited. So don't blame yourself for the, for the confusion that ensues in shops. It's not your fault. And she was quite worried about it. And uh, yeah, interestingly enough, it's frequently with, you know, there's a lot of bad press about immigrants. Well, you know, living in the United States with your current uh, sure. contender for president. Yes. But there, the, the bad press that immigrants have, in fact, in this city, a lot of the people who are more, most present and most capable of dealing with you and are willing to talk to you are people from other cultures. Yeah. It's, I, I, I've noticed the same thing, yes. I, I mean, people from the Philippines, people from, from Europe, people from South America, Africa. They talk. Yes. Many of them 
are not loaded down with gadgets and devices. You know, mm. they don't have the income for it. And so they're still looking and talking <laughs> to people. So what's the antidote? I mean, what, where do we go from well, here? Well, that's a good question. What's missing in us that... Well, a, a desire to be out, to be communicating, to be present, to be, a desire to be present. I think that's... There are a lot of people who want somebody to organize things for them so they don't have to trouble themselves. And I think this is the appeal of a, a psychopath like Donald Trump. Is, uh. you know, I've got the answers. And when I need you to run riot in the streets, I'll call on you. You know, we'll take care of you. It's the it's a it's a father complex of enormous dimensions, and there's good reason to be frightened. Good reason to be scared today in this world. There's always probably been good reason to be scared, right. but it's very it's uh, because of the machine, the computer. We're very aware of all the threats to us, and I think sometimes they're blown out of all proportion. Right. Mm. And then now they want to microchip us right. and turning us into robots. Yeah. Mm. So are we escaping, trying to escape our humanness? Well, I, I don't know that we're trying to escape. I don't think we even, most of us don't know what our humanness is even. Is even. So we're not trying to escape it. We don't know what it is. We're, we just, we're just, we want an easy road. We don't want to walk a difficult path. And Jungian, Jung's path, the path of individuation, is a difficult path. Yes, it is. And... He said, you know, you, what, you get on that path, you walk it, it's not going to be light and easy. You're going to have to face things, deal with things, and people don't want to. People have now, I mean, this is not new. People have always been frightened of what they don't know. But maybe back then they didn't have a choice, and well, now we may- do. Well, I think they've all, people have always had ways of escaping the journey. Right. Always had ways of escaping the journey, becoming preoccupied with other things uh, that that seem in the moment more important and may be more important, in fact. But now it's uh, it's you know it's. The whole computer world, the internet world, it's a world of cyberspace. It's, uh, there's no, there are no chains on us. We can float wherever we right. want to go. And they don't want anybody pulling them down to... To, to reality? Yeah. To reality, which is pretty grim in many right. cases. For many people, very grim. Yeah. And this keeps promising, this machine keeps promising, 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 promising. And people are wondering, well, why, why don't I have what I, why don't, why, why aren't these promises being fulfilled? Well, why am I still where I was? And they turn to people like a Donald Trump and get me out of here. Get me out of here. Make this better for me. And he says, yeah, for sure I will. Follow me. I'll make it better for you. Like the Pied Piper of Hamlin. So he won't and he can't. And the only thing we can do is inner work. Well, I mean, there are, there are a lot of outer... There's a lot of outer work to be done, for sure, in society. There's no question. There's outer work that needs to be done. We need to turn our attention to those outer problems that need fixing. But for sure... Inner work is a necessary accompaniment, accompaniment to that. Yeah. To that focus, you—they're both necessary. We can't turn our backs on the outer world and what's going on out there. Nor can we, and we certainly can't afford not to be aware of what's going on in us. Jung's image of the keeping the candle lit—that you know, got to keep your light shining 
your in you know your own light shining. That's a very powerful image for me. I think that's what the individuation journey is: keeping the light shining and you know, against all the odds. In the description of the lecture, you say that it explores the struggles for survival in a society increasingly addicted to one-upmanship and celebration of sentimentality. What do you mean by sentimentality? Well, when I talked first about the uh, impact of, you know, Eros in in our present world, it's a world of rampant sexualizing of everything and alternatively sentimentalizing of human relationships. That's what I meant by the this uh, you know, formulaic, a formulaic way of looking at relationship and reacting to relationship, being in relationship, where sentimentality is a real sickness in certain cultures, North American culture for sure, that you know that, that there is a model of relationship that, that, comes it, that it should be a certain way, and it and it and it, and it has this sort of shine, this golden patina uh, that you know it, if you endure a bit of sadness, it will all work out in the end. Your lover leaves you, and your lover returns. Oh, and we see it on. You know, on television and movies, yeah, we see it all over the place. Okay, that's what I mean by sentimentality. Okay. It's it's not real stuff. Mm. Sometimes relationships end, and they end, and the relation <laughs> and partners never see each other again. Right, and they live with a they live with a lot of animosity towards the other. There's that sexualizing tendency and the sentimentalizing tendency. The Hallmark card phenomenon, I which see. has always been has been with us for a long since Hallmark's been around, but it's it's just more widespread. And I think that's what we're dealing with: is the computer, internet has made everything so accessible, and we are deluged with images. Travel travel ads are full of this kind of sentimentality. The picture of the the loving couple on the beach in the sunset, right. you know, it, that's sentimental. Well, you could have this if you were only to get it right. I'd like to think about where we go from here. Right. Well, there are more and more people recognizing the pitfalls of this internet culture mm-hmm. and who are turning their computers off and who are trying to get back to a social life that is not mediated by media and there are a lot more people interested in you know firming up friendships becoming becoming real about their about their relationships that they recognize what an interference what interference the machine runs the computer runs the internet life is for for us or can be for us they're, they're willing to turn it off and to, to try to a return to old values like face-to-face contact and, uh, you know, Jung's old plea that everyone keep, keep his light lit. Funny way of putting it, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Keep the candle lit. You're, you can't let that candle go out because the light that you hold offers light to others. And I think that there's something very true about that. I'd like to thank my guest, Graham Jackson, for his time that day. I found him to be a lovely man with a beautiful voice, and I'm sorry the quality of this recording doesn't do him justice. On the website, speakingofjung.com, You'll find more information about Mr. Jackson's work, as well as links to many of the topics that were mentioned. There, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available 
on iTunes and on Stitcher. Special thanks to Daryl Sharp and Christina Becker, and to United Airlines and the outstanding staff at the Hilton Toronto Airport for helping to make this episode possible. With gratitude to Sean Lau, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>